see you tonight. Appreciate you coming out. So, thought we was going to have some hymn singing going on over there. <laughs> uh, but I do appreciate you coming out. It's awful hot outside, so this is a good, cool place to be. Um, any prayer requests or updates on any requests that we have, just do remember those on our prayer sheet. Uh, our text tonight will exhort us. Uh, I've saved the last part of this to share a little more in regards to being the church. I said be at church, kind of tongue-in-cheek this morning. We, are, we can't be at church. We are the church. Uh, the church can gather in a building like we do. Uh, but I kind of saved that tonight, so I don't think I'll be as lengthy. And so you can go out and enjoy the hot weather afterwards if you'd like. So, uh, but I did want to save this section just to concentrate on that. But let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Father, we do thank you for uh, just this day, for the opportunity to gather as the body of Christ this morning and worship together and open your word. And, and Lord, thank you for the, the way the word ministers to us. It encourages us and calls us out at the same time. And Lord, we're, uh, as Hebrews reminds us, Father, the book of Hebrews, that uh, we can rejoice and that we're disciplined for it is an indication that we are sons and daughters of Christ. So, so Father, we thank you for that. Uh, we just ask that you would be with us as we open your word again tonight, particularly in regards to the, to the church. Uh, we've uh, seems like we've gotten so far away from that in, in several generations. And Lord, I thank you for the indications and the signs that we are returning to the church's true foundation. And Father, we just pray that you would give us wisdom and encouragement and guide us along that way. Uh, we want to be faithful to the truth of your word. And so help us with that. Lord, we do remember our request uh, the many needs in our church family, physical needs, material, emotional, uh, even financial, Father. We know that there are folks who are going through difficult times, and we just commit each of these to you in prayer as, uh, as uh, our text tonight in, encourages us to pray for one another. So, Father, uh, we do that tonight and lift them to you. Again, Lord, be with us as we look into your word and give us understanding, insight, Father, and make it clear uh, how these truths apply to our individual lives and our lives as the body of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As I was sharing this morning, beginning in verse 7, I want to read from verse 7 down through 20 again um, and kind of review our way uh, back to verse 13. But James is exhorting them, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no is to be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and the one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. God bless the reading of his word. As I was sharing this morning, just sort of the B outline here, be patient uh, in verse 7 and then also be encouraged. Uh, I just, in saying those again, I'm just, I hope you get the context of what he's getting at here and the circumstances that they were in, all that they were enduring, even from the beginning of the book when he mentions trials, counted all joy, all the things that they were enduring. He's saying in the midst of those, be patient. Verse 7, be encouraged. Verse 8, be content. Verse 9, these are, these are my summaries or uh, paraphrases of the meaning of those verses. Be persevering, verses 10 and 11, and then be consistent with integrity. Uh, you could expand those out and make huge application there. Uh, in fact, I asked Matt this morning, tonight will be the 15th sermon in the book of James in five chapters. And I thought to myself, that's a summary and a really brief one at that. Um, you could go into this book and probably, uh, probably preach 50 sermons out of this single book. There is so much there and it's so rich. So this, this attitude or this character that the Christian is to be demonstrating in the midst of trials. I shared this morning the farmer analogy there, the idea that it was not to be just simply a passive waiting, but a faithful, obedient waiting upon the Lord to provide the thing which he has promised, which we are certain and with expectation is to come. And it seemed to me uh, that partly in verse 12, but certainly in verse 13, it shifts to a wider application. It seems now he's talking more directly about the church and its life together. And that's why I really categorize these last verses as be, the last be is be the church. Be the church. Uh, that's critical to enduring the difficulties and the trials that will come about. Uh, I am thankful and, and I even see, have seen for some time and, and even accelerated uh, recently uh, of God calling the church back to a, back to a Christian fellowship. Uh, and I mean a real fellowship, not just, not just meals and dinner on the grounds and recreation, but a, but a genuine spiritual fellowship. In fact, uh, that call is sometimes uncomfortable for churches that have gotten settled into a different kind of fellowship. Uh, it become more of a club. So, so it's significant to me that the church being the church and all that entails is critical to the church withstanding or being patient and waiting patiently and faithfully in times of trial. And I'll try to share uh, where I'm getting that. In verse 13, the church is to be the church by its prayer and in singing praises. It says, is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. That's, a, that's almost like bookends there. I don't think he means that if you're sick, don't sing praises, just pray. If you're cheerful, don't pray, sing praises. Uh, I think he's laying that down as bookends. This is the business of the church. We're to be praying and singing praises. That's a ministry of the church. It's interesting to me that oftentimes when we're sick and when we're miserable, we don't feel like singing, certainly. And a lot of times we don't even feel like praying. He says later on, pray for one another in that case. 
But in this sense, he's essentially saying, if you're in the church, if you're a member of the body of Christ and you may not feel like singing praises, when you gather with the body of Christ, they sing praises and they lift you up in their own praise. Now, there's a ministry there that is sustaining during difficult times. How often have you come to church and had a difficult week and been strained and, and your faith had been tested and you gathered and you stood with the people of God and you began to sing a hymn or, or a song of praise to God and, and how it just changes your whole perspective on things. A lot of times you didn't, you didn't feel like singing praises. You've had a hard week. Maybe you hadn't felt well. Maybe you're chronically ill or, or maybe some kind of joint or back issues, but you made your way to the house of God and you gathered with believers and they began to sing praises even while you didn't and you were lifted up and carried away in their praise. And for a moment, you took your mind off of your suffering and your heartaches. Well, the believer, the one who is sick is supposed to pray. And he says, otherwise, the one who is cheerful, sing praises. Don't be disturbed and don't be discouraged. And that's the ministry of the body of Christ. When we come together, we pray and we sing praises. And you just have no idea sometimes of how the corporate doing of that is ministering to someone. I, I can't tell you almost, almost every time. Uh, the praise of the church and the prayer of the church is ministering to me in many ways. Uh, I can't tell you how often I stand back there and I've shared this before, but uh, I've never gotten used to speaking in public and my insides are flipping up and down and butterflies are everywhere. And I'm anxious that I'll even remember a single word. And I'm back there just crying out to God while the songs of praise are going up. Lord, help me. This is your people. This is your word. If they don't get fed from you, they don't get anything from me and, and just straining there. But the praises are carrying me along. And I believe they're part of the way God sustains me when I finally do get here and can remember anything. So being in the church is critical as we come together and we pray together and we sing praises together. Uh, let me just say the way we pray and the way we praise matters too. Uh, praise is not just singing songs. Praise is singing songs that draw our hearts and our attentions to the glories of God, that draw us away from ourselves and towards God and to behold his glory. Prayer, I believe, is the same way. Prayer is not simply just us listing out all the things we need. Certainly we're to bring our request to the Lord, but push through the request and begin to recite in your prayer the glory and the power and the grace and the truth of God, the promises of God, whereby he has promised to provide for those things. And so you're not reminding God, you're reminding yourself and all the church gathered together that we pray to a God who can answer prayer and we worship a God who is worthy of that worship. That's calling the church upwards to God, not just therapeutic for one another uh, in the temporal sense, but therapeutic in the spiritual sense as our minds are called to consider God. So to endure trials, to be patient in trials until the coming of the Lord, we're to be the church in our prayer, in our singing of praises. In verse 14 and 15, I think I, I just had in my notes here, submit to the leadership God has provided, and, or, or you might even say the structure that God has provided. But he says to them <clears throat> in verse 14, <clears throat> excuse me, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now there's a lot in that passage. But one of the brief things that I would say is they are, they are particularly asked here to call upon the elders. 
Uh, I was reading an article that said, uh, was talking about how few people will literally ask for prayer, especially from the leaders of their church. Uh, as a leader in the church, that's helpful for us because if you ask for prayer, then we know there's a need there. And not only can we pray, but we might be able to practically minister to that need as well with the counsel of scripture or just with assistance of some way. The deacons could do that also. But how, how frequently is there a, a discern or a, a struggle happening and yet we don't want to share the need for a prayer? There's a sickness, whether it be spiritual or physical. Some people are just private and I understand that sometimes we need to use discretion. But I like it here that James says, is any among you sick? You call for the elders. The elders, not to run around and find out who's sick all the time. They have other things to be concentrating on. But if you let them know, um, they, they are to use their office in a way that ministers to that person uh, as, as God's ministers in the church. It's interesting as well in this particular passage if anyone is among you sick, call for the elders. And they talk about the anointing of oil. First of all, they're to pray over the person. Uh, we've actually done that on occasion here when someone is specifically asked. I remember, uh, I don't think we used anointing, any kind of oil to anoint, but we did lay hands upon them and we prayed. Uh, and that brings its own challenges. But we're to pray. Leaders, elders of the church, when someone has a sickness and they contact us or they let us know, not necessarily through the grapevine, but they contact an elder or a deacon and say, look, I'd like to have the elders gather with me and pray for me. I'm going through this. Elders, we ought to be, we are obligated. We are obligated to gather with them and to pray, to pray. Not just to say, okay, here's what you need to do, but to pray. And that's leading or carrying them, as it were, in their suffering into the throne room of God, essentially, and petitioning for them and on their behalf. He also says here regarding the anointing with oil. Uh, that's an interesting passage. There are some who believe there's a spiritual significance to that. Uh, some people to the extreme that the oil with the blessing of the Lord becomes miraculous and the oil brings physical healing. I think that's an extreme, but the word here used is the unusual for the word oil uh, in regards to the anointing oil uh, signifying the Holy Spirit. Uh, although we need to pray in the name of the Lord, certainly, but the word here usually is dedicated to the medicinal oil, which olive oil generally had a great medicinal purposes. I was reading a lot of articles. I didn't realize how healing that oil was. And so some people believe that what's happening here is that the elders would gather around this person in their sickness, anoint them with the olive oil as a medicinal, a medicinal remedy, and then to pray the prayer of faith as an additional spiritual remedy. So you may be talking about both things. In our modern trans understanding, you might say the elders say to them, you need to see a doctor and let us pray for you. you know, that's what one commentator said. I'm not sure myself. Uh, I've always read this passage in regards to the prayer and the anointing being symbolic of the calling, the calling for the Holy Spirit to minister in this life. Uh, that may be true as well. It may be a combination of both. I'm not sure what James has in mind, but I am sure of this. He has called on the elders to be doing it. He's called upon the elders to be doing it. Notice here it is plural. Again, an argument for a plurality of leadership, but he didn't say go call the pastor and have the pastor come and pray over you. He calls that plurality of elders, those men whom God has set aside to lead in the church, those men who bring to you the word of God, who are to be growing and mature in their faith. Let them bring to bear the truth of God's word and prayer to God on your behalf, uh, on your behalf 
and for you in that moment. Call upon the elders of the church. That's the church being the church. How do you bear up in trials? How do you patiently endure? Well, when you're sick and you're ailing in the midst of those trials, call upon the elders of the church. Have them come to you and, and pray or come to them and have them pray to you together. I think if they do that in the context of the church, the church itself gathers in those prayers as well. So the whole church is lifting up this brother or sister who is sick among us in their prayers. That's the church being the church. And that's so critical to our patience and our enduring in difficult times and in a faithful way. He mentions as well uh, in verse 15, the church is to be faithful and growing in the faith. In verse 15, he says in the prayer, this prayer of the elders, but the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Some people believe he's speaking here of spiritual resurrection. And this presents some problems because if this is physical healing and the person that we pray for isn't healed, then the accusation will be, well, you elders didn't pray with a prayer of faith or you did something wrong. And we hear a lot of guilt thrown around in our day today whenever there's a prayer for the sick and they don't get well. It's never the prayer guy. It's usually the prosperity teacher says you didn't believe enough. So we have a lot of confusion arising up out of this. In fact, the Catholic Church sacred, uh, sac sacred, made this sacerdotal in some ways and actually turned this passage around as an anointing for death. And so, so I believe there is a certain spiritual aspect here. Uh, but one of the reasons that people think he's talking about deliverance from sin and resurrection from the dead is the language he uses at the end. So it, it gets kind of confusing. Is he talking about physical healing? Then why does he mention forgive him his sins and use the word raise him as though uh, the connotation would be risen from the dead. So it is not an easy passage to understand. But I think, I think there could be dual application here. I think we ought to pray for those who are sick and they're concerned and they come to the elders and ask that we might pray. We ought to pray for their healing and we ought to pray confidently that God is able indeed to heal, heal them. We ought to, if, if it's a medicinal purpose, we ought to recognize that we're not physicians and there may be medical conditions that a doctor could help them with. And the instrument of their healing might be a doctor's <coughs> scalpel. Or a, or a pharmacist's medication. And so we need to be wise to that, but we also need to be prayerful because we know the great physician is the Lord and the, and the true healing comes from the Lord. So we pray for that physical healing, confident that he can certainly do that according to his purposes. And at the same time, we ought to be praying in light if the Lord chooses not to bring healing here, that they might know him and find that ultimate healing, that ultimate miracle in the resurrection and in the new life in Christ. So I think you could expand that application to this. But here you are to call upon the elders and they are to function in this way. That's, that's a function of the church. <clears throat> that's not a lone Christian out there bearing up. That is the Christian living out faithfully and waiting patiently in times of trial and even times of bodily sickness, relying upon God's ministry through the church. And to me, that's what's, that's what's so stunning in our generation when there's, a, when there's this ideal that church, faithful church membership is, is kind of an option. It's optional. 
You can be a Christian and go to heaven. I've asked people, I had people to ask me that many times. Can you be a Christian and not go to church? And I'll say to them, I suppose so. But why would you even risk that you're even a Christian if you didn't want to gather with the body of Christ? Why would you assume that you're a Christian if you have a distaste for gathering with the body of Christ? There's some serious questions if we don't feel a compulsion to gather with the body of Christ. And as I said this morning, what's so critical about this in enduring with patience difficult times is that the instrument that God uses most often and almost exclusively is the body of Christ. This group gathered here. You can't, you can't get this outside. Uh, I'm convinced that there are things that God will only do in my life in the context of gathering with the body of Christ. I may, I may ignore the body and want God to do that work, and I'm convinced that God says, no, I've already provided the, 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 the avenue or the, or the environment to do that work, and you're rejecting the environment. I'm not doing the work. Now, it's different if you're providentially hindered from gathering with the body of Christ. Christ can minister to us in a prison cell and cause us to sing praises as Paul and Silas did. I'm not talking about a providential incapacity for gathering. I'm talking about a willful neglect of the gathering together of the saints. Hebrews tells us not to neglect the gathering of the saints. It's important and it is the church. So we're to be faithful in our praying and also, I think, faithful in our growing in the faith. Uh, I know when I first became a Christian, <clears throat> things would come into my life and, and challenges. And I was reading the Bible and studying and gleaning and learning all I could. But I would come to church sometimes and, and there would be sometimes a, sim- a single phrase uttered from the preacher's mouth that maybe didn't have any relevance whatsoever to do with the exposition that he was doing. But the Lord used that phrase to pique my mind or to point my mind to another text of scripture. And it turns out that single phrase ministered to me. I remember hearing the story, it was, it was told is true, <clears throat> but this lady had been praying for over 25 years for her husband to come and gather with her in the body of Christ on Sunday morning. She, so her heart ached so much that her husband was outside of the body of Christ and lost and outside of Christ together. And she prayed and prayed and earnestly prayed and prayed. And she would come to church and her friends would gather and they would pray together. And they prayed for that husband. And and finally, one day her husband got up that morning and he says, I'm going to church with you this morning. 25 years of praying. And she came to church and her husband sat, in the, sat as far away from the pulpit as he could possibly sit. And she sat right there by his side. And all of a sudden the preacher started preaching and all he preached on was the begat text. And -and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And And she went all the way through that talking about this one begat this one. And the wife said she was just crushed because she was thinking, 25 years I've been praying and you're going through the genealogies. And she was devastated. And she went home and broken hearted. And she said the next morning she saw the pastor's car pull in and her husband had called the pastor And he had been convicted by the message Sunday morning and he wanted to know how he could become a Christian. And she was stunned and she said, I I don't understand. There was nothing of the gospel in that message. And he says, maybe not. But he said, there was something that rung in my ears all evening and all into the night and I didn't sleep a wink. Because every time he said, so-and-so begat so-and-so and he lived 900 years and he died. 
And he said, I kept hearing all night and he died and he died and he died. Generation after generation, the Lord took that one passage and pierced the heart of her hard-hearted husband and brought him to know the Lord. My point is that wouldn't have happened outside the gathering of the body of Christ. And you may think the servant is not relevant to you, but God may use it to make it relevant to salvation to someone else. That happens within the body. That's that's necessary. And that is a necessity to patient bearing and growing in faith. That happens incrementally as you consistently gather with the body of Christ over a period of years. Of years. I read someone somewhere not long ago that the average stay, I couldn't believe this, the average stay of a Southern Baptist pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention is four years. And I said, if you have a 30-year career in the ministry and you stayed four years at each church on average, how many churches have you been a pastor of throughout your career? Where is the longevity and the living and dying alongside brothers and sisters and the weeping and the praising and the sorrows and the joy and the challenges and the victories? Where is the life together? If the preacher stays four years, why would a member be expected to stay any longer than that? Please understand, it is the long, it is the long term in which you are being sanctified and, and crucified to the self. I remember talking to someone who was having some conflict in the church and they had decided to leave and they just felt like the Lord, quote, was leading us somewhere else. And I just was frank in one of those rare moments for me. I'm not usually this bold, but I said, I think the Lord is leading you to stay right in the midst of where you're in conflict. In fact, I think that conflict is the tool by which he's sanctifying you because you, if they're wrong, you're going to have to love, figure out a way to love them anyway. And if they're right, you're going to have to yield to what they're saying, even if you don't like the instrument that God used to rebuke you. And so you are exactly where you need to be. So don't tell me the Lord's leading you somewhere else because you're having conflict in the church. Paul says, I hear there are conflicts among you, and I partly believe it. And it must be so, so that those who are approved of God may be manifested. So there's going to always be difficulties in the gathering of the body of Christ. But it is pressing through that, discerning, praying, being humbled, being crucified to self, and coming out on the other side of that with a greater grasp of the glory and the love and the grace of God and a deeper love for brethren. That happening time after time through the years equips you to wait patiently. If we can't be patient with our brothers how are we going to be patient waiting on the Lord? Because none of us know when he's coming back. I think it's soon, but that soon could be in his timetable a hundred years from now. I'll be long gone and in his presence and my body will be dust in the ground before he could come back. So I don't know when he's coming back. How am I going to be patient and be faithful waiting upon the Lord when I can't even be patient with a brother who's in the same process of sanctification that I am? So we're to be faithful in our praying, but also growing in our faith from verse 15. Verse 16, in the church, we're to be united and devoted to one another. Therefore, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So we're to be praying to one another. Now, I realize that because we are fallen, there needs to be some discretion on what we confess in regards to our sin. But the general, the, the general 
tenor of that is that we are not aloof about our own struggles with sin. We're not, we don't set ourselves apart as though I'm not, I never have any problems with sin. I don't have any sin. I don't ever talk about sinning. I never talk to my brothers about any struggles with whether it be faith or whether it be something that I'm trying to put out of my life or some fight I'm having, spiritual battle. I don't tell anybody about it. Here's the deception. We don't tell anybody because we don't want them to think we're not spiritual. And by not telling them, they think we are spiritual and therefore they don't want to tell us about what they're struggling with. And you know what happens? We gather in a building with a bunch of little islands in their own battles and spiritual warfare and nobody knows what anybody else is going through and we all think the other guys got it figured out and we're being crushed by the battle in our own lives. When the church, when the church was provided so that we could come together and be honest with one another that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves it is the gift of God and that sanctification is an ongoing process and God uses and sanctifies through the instrument of Christians being forthright with one another I don't I don't know about you but I will confess right now I don't have it all figured out even when I grasp the truth and I think I have a firm grasp of the truth, there is a great battle that rages for me to live according to that truth and to conform my life and thinking to that truth. That's the fight. That's the battle. And, and I don't come and tell everybody about that specific battle, but I am not in any way going to communicate to you or let you believe that that battle is not going on in my life. In fact, most of my preaching comes from those battles. And when the word of truth comes to, to bear in those battles, and even when the Lord grants victory through that truth and through his illumination of that truth and its application in that particular uh, instance in my life, that's a testimony and a preaching topic, as it were, because the word of truth has provided for victory over that particular battle. And then there's another one after that and another one and another one and another one. And they may get more sophisticated and more challenging as time goes on. How much more challenging is it to genuinely wait upon the Lord patiently? To subject ourselves and to know that we are being abused, maybe by the culture, that we are being marginalized and pushed out of the culture and silenced, to willingly yield to that, granted and expectant of the ultimate victory on the other end. As I shared this morning, that Christ's name and his glory will be vindicated in the face of the very ones who are persecuting those who follow him. What kind of a challenge is it to wait like that? It's a great challenge. And as a church, when we gather together and we confess our sins to one another, when we pray for one another, it unites us in that sense. We become devoted to one another. We learn to love one another as Christ has loved us, which is the emblem of our discipleship, to love others as Christ has loved us. Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. How are you going to learn to love one another like that unless there are demands made upon you to love in spite of your feelings in those moments? Whenever that happens, you'll find out that you don't have within you the capacity to love that unconditionally. And it is a divine love that comes to you and flows through you that, that makes you able to extend that sort of love to others. That happens in the church. Let me just insert this as well. I've always thought of the church as the proving ground for Christians as well. There's grace here. 
Yes, there are expectations and the word of truth is there, but there's also mercy and grace. There may be even rebuke, but there is also mercy and grace. This is where the growing Christian learns to function and to live faithfully. And when he fails, he has a church that calls him out in truth and says, you have failed church discipline, but also that it is restorative and brings him back to the fellowship and becomes discipler of that believer. This is an environment where he can safely pursue the Christian life and not be condemned outright so that when he goes out into the world where there is no mercy because if he sins in the eyes of the world they will condemn him immediately and disregard his entire testimony because he has failed. I've seen him do it. The church is the place where he can practice the Christian faith and learn how to be obedient. The Great Commission says, go and teach them to observe all the things which I've commanded you. Notice he doesn't say to teach them all that I commanded you. Yes, teach them all the words of Jesus. But he says more than that. Teach them to observe those words. That's the battle. Anybody can memorize them. Lay them out. I mean, the Jewish, uh, for, for their bar mitzvah, they were memorizing massive source, massive pieces of Bible text verbatim. I remember in Fruitland, we had a professor who got mad at us, and our fi final exam was to remember, memorize, I think it might have been the first two chapters of the Gospel of John, verbatim. You couldn't make a mistake. All my classmates were mad, and, and that kind of irritated me, but I just said, well, this is a great opportunity. <laughs> so I memorized the whole thing. My, to my chagrin, he, 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 re, he reneged on his deal and it wasn't, it counted only for one point on our final exam. So all those guys that didn't do it only lost one point. They made a 99 instead of a 100. But it, it was worth the effort. But still, it's just memorization. I can memorize something verbatim and never give a single thought to what it means. Jesus said, go and teach them to observe it. That's the fight. And the best place to fight that fight is within the embrace of the body of Christ where there is honesty and truth and mercy and grace and also all the rebukes that are necessary as well. But there is a, an embrace of that brother that holds him fast in the fellowship of the body of Christ. That happens in the church. You ever notice that folks who decide they don't need the church, how how aberrant they are in their theology you go sit with them and talk to them sometimes and they're I mean, they're all over the map and i mean sometimes i hear things and i'm thinking that isn't even that's not even close to orthodoxy i mean that's not nobody in history has held that view how did you come to that view well i just thought it through they need the church they need the gifts God gives to the church. They need, they need the sounding board to float those ideas. And they need a, a knowledgeable Christian, faithful Christian in the word who will bring the word to bear and correct their path there through the word. But because they've rejected the church, they're able to do that. And I'm convinced that some of those are going to go to their graves, convinced that they are a Christian and going to heaven. And they have everything practically wrong about Christian theology and Christian belief. We need the church to endure patiently. God has ordained that we learn to endure and learn to wait upon him in the church. In verse 16 as well and also through to 18, I think as well in the church, we're to be the church in our pursuit of holy living. He says here, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Let me just say that that verse has always been baffling to me. 
Because it seems like he would have said the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. But it seems like there's something, there's something about the prayer uh, that, that arises from a righteous man that accomplishes much. Uh, the, the American says the effective prayer. I remember the King James used the word the effectual prayer. That's the kind of prayer. Whatever prayer accomplishes much is offered up by a righteous man and it's effectual. And so there must be a, certain, a right way to pray a right character and a right spiritual place to pray from, and that is accomplishing a lot. And then he gives the example of Elijah. Well, if you go back and look at Elijah, Elijah wasn't just making stuff up. I mean, he was a prophet of God. He was walking with God. And when he called for the rain to stop, it was at the word of God. And when he goes back later in three years and says the rain's coming back, it was at the word of God. So there is an effectual prayer in that sense would be Elijah communing with the father and hearing the word of God and praying the word. That's the effective kind of prayer. And that's the prayer that righteous men pray, those who are in right fellowship with God. And And that sort of prayer from that sort of man, that accomplishes much. That's, what that, that's, that's why that verse is so baffling to me because it doesn't just mean I need to pray and if I just really believe it'll accomplish a lot. There's a lot more to praying faithfully, effectually as a righteous man and trusting that it will accomplish much. And I'm convinced it has all to do with who's at the center and to whose glory it is. And so the church is to be growing in holiness in that way. Verse 17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't, he wasn't some super divine. He wasn't an angel. He was a man and he had like passions. He had the same fears. We know that after Jezebel and, and the incident on the, the Mount Carmel and he flees into the desert and he's afraid and he's ashamed because he's fled after having faced down the prophets of Baal. And so he's a man just like us. And he says he has a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly. So earnest, earnest, the earnesty in prayer is a part of that effectual in prayer of a righteous man, I think as well. But he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. I'm summarizing that in regards to the church is that in the church we're to be the church in that we are pursuing holy living. Uh, this, is, this is particularly of us of the Reformed persuasion, quote unquote. I put that in air quotes because reform means more than this. But sometimes we're, we're so concentrating on grace as though there's no necessity to pursue holy living. Uh, I don't think that's true. In fact, grace should provide for more holy living. Because it, it, it releases me from in my own strength of obeying the word. It, it, leans, it, it liberates me to obey from the heart the word of God to the glory of God to the recognition of my own good. And so it frees me to pursue more fully holy living. Obeying the commands without Christ and apart from grace is only going to make you a legalist and self-righteous. But obeying the command and following Christ and following the word of God out of the grace of God from the grace of God will make you glorifying to God as it were. And he will be glorified through your life and through that obedience. So in the church is where we pursue holy living through the preaching and teaching of the word, through prayer, through our worship, through our ministry and our life together. We are learning, learning, learning more about who God is.
and being impacted more by the glory of the God that we are perceiving or perceive or seeing. So in the church, we're to be the church and that we're to pursue holy living. By the way, that's going to agitate your persecutors. You realize that, right? I mean, nothing, uh, nothing worse than a persecution desires, if not silence altogether, they desire to strike fear in you. And then the fear becomes the intimidation for, for keeping you quiet in the days to come without having to put you to death. In fact, the Bible warns of that. The fear of man brings a snare. And, and I remember saying that at the beginning of COVID, as soon as it happened, that was my first sermon. The fear of man brings a snare. And it was a warning to say that be careful here because this fear that's rising in everybody will be the very instrument by which you become ensnared. And it's not so much my fear of that man, it's the fear in this man that becomes a snare to him because he starts making decisions apart from truth and apart from the promises of God and based upon his own estimation of self-preservation. And pretty soon he finds himself ensnared. And so when holy living as the church will agitate those who are trying to silence the church because the darker the world gets and the more holy the church lives its life, the more light it shines into that dark world and the more that world will be agitated by that light shining and the pressure may intensify. Nonetheless, if we're to be waiting patiently on the Lord, we're to be pursuing holiness and we do that best when we do it together as the body of Christ and let God utilize the church as his instrument to bring about holy living in our lives. I've always thought holy living is the, the increasing disgust for sin in my life. <laughs> and that's my simple North Idol definition. I'm growing more holy in my living, more set apart unto God as I recognize that sin, any sin in my life becomes pungent to me, odious. Disgusting. I hate it in my life. Uh, when that, then that happens is when you put away the sin. You can't become holy by liking the sin. <laughs> really, I like it, but I'm going to try to be holy and not do it. I still like it. In fact, if I had a chance to do it, I'd probably do it again because I like sin. You're not becoming holy. You're becoming legalistic and you'll fail down the road at some point because your desires and your like for the sin is going to overpower your willingness to be obedient or or to discipline yourself. That's a divine operation. We become holy, set apart unto God through the body of Christ and through God's work through that body. And then finally in verses 19 and 20, we're to be the church in that we are to be restoring the wayward. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know, let the one who turns him back know that he, turns, he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul. I think he means the soul of that sinner and death uh, from death and will cover a multitude of sins, perhaps for that sinner or for perhaps or even for himself. But here's my point. If we're waiting upon the Lord and we're waiting patiently in the church, part of that waiting and part of the ministry of the church is it turns us back when we become wayward. And not a, not a single one of us in our flesh is not vulnerable to that, even if it's a slight deviation for a week or two or for a month. One thing I can tell you about the flesh, and you already know this, but I'll reiterate it, but the flesh likes it to be satisfied. And when you, when you neglect gathering with the body of Christ, uh, it never fails <clears throat> 
the first little bit, you, you feel a little guilty. Even if we have a cancellation of a service for some holiday, do you miss being here on that night? Uh, I do. Me and Hope will talk about it all the time. We're sitting around the house, and I'm just restless. I'm up walking around, and I'm just looking for something to do. I'm just, I'm just restless. My heart, my heart has been become accustomed to gathering with the body of Christ on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings and on that day. And if I'm not there, my, my spiritual heart feels some ailing involved in that. Well, your flesh is the same way because if you go on not gathering with the body of Christ, the flesh will find some satisfaction in not being there. You'll think, you'll think to yourself things, gosh, I had all kinds of time this evening. I got to sit on the porch all the way till sunset, and it was so pleasant out. I got to be with family. We had a nice day at the lake. I got to do all these things. And, and you say, well, it wasn't so bad that time. We don't miss all the time. And then you miss some more, and, you're, and, and systematically your flesh is saying, yeah, more of that, more of that, more of that. We like that. And pretty soon you get so comfortable doing that that you feel uncomfortable in coming back to church. And then the devil jumps on the other side and says, you dare go back to church? How dare you? You've been out six months. He plays both ends. He lures us away by promising the satisfaction of the flesh. And then when we got drifted far away, then he mocks us as, as though we would return. You're not going back. You're just a hypocrite. You're not going back to the church. In the church, one of the great ministries of the church is that it turns the wayward back to the Lord. It makes that effort. Uh, I don't know if you know how special that is, but uh, I've seen circumstances in families where a wayward son or a daughter went away and, and the family just shut them off, just rejected them all together. Don't want nef- nothing to do with you ever again. Don't you ever call me. Don't you ever say a word to my the rest of the family. You are to us dead. You've seen tragic situations like that because of some maybe even legitimate bad behavior. But in the church, when the sinner begins to be wayward, we don't wait for him to fall off the cliff. We see him deviating. And in the church, there are relationships deep enough and spiritual enough that we recognize something in the countenance. Something is moving them in a different direction. And the love of the church says, I got I to gotta go help my brother. I don't want to lose my brother here. I don't want to lose my sister. And we come alongside and we turn them back. And I love what James says here. Let the one who does that know that he has saved a sinner. He saved his soul. You have literally brought him back into the fold. You have been instrumental in God bringing him back into the fold. And his soul is involved here. And I do think the covering of the multitude of sins may be referring to the sin of the one who turned him back. We're not perfect in fact, we may be wavering some, some smaller way ourselves, but, it, but the fact that we would go for that brother and bring him back into the fold may actually be a mercy on the sins that are even in our lives, in our own little deviations. It could mean simply him. Many sins of his would be covered by the mercy of God as expressed through the body of Christ. So if you listen to all these things and together and you put all these together, if we're to endure patiently and wait upon the Lord in times of trial as they even increase and intensify in our generation, we're to be patient, we're to be encouraged in the Lord, we're to be content, we're to be persevering, we're to be consistent and integrity and in our character and we're to be the church. Be the church. Be who the Bible says we are. We're the We are new creations in Christ. We are gathered together. We all have this promise. We all all have a certain destiny. 
We already know the outcome of this. And so we wait and we endure and we grow in the Lord together. Some of you will excel in one month and others may seem to drag and lag behind and then things will flip and six months later they'll be excelling and you'll have hit a plateau. But all together, working together, God working through the body of Christ, he will take us all along a trajectory towards him. And that's not a straight line. That's more like this, 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 this. But the trajectory on long term is bringing us more into conformity with Christ. And man, what a treasure that will be when there's nowhere else in the world that you can have that. And we're getting there quick. We're getting there quick. You can't, you can't even go to clubs you may have used to enjoy because so many of them are deviating now and they're, they're trying to embrace woke, woke philosophy in our generation. And so now the club you used to enjoy hanging out with the guys in different clubs that you could find some fellowship, now you can't even go there because they're moving so far away. And it seems to me that it's getting, there are fewer and fewer places where Christians, authentic, genuine Christians can gather together and be the body of Christ and to find encouragement and strength there to wait patiently and to endure the difficulties in time of head in the times of head church is important. The gathering of the body of Christ is important. Uh, most of you know this, but I've never known the fellowship of any body of Christ other than this one. Uh, I came to know the Lord at 29 years old. Mom had us in and out of churches when we were kids, but we never knew what church fellowship was like. In fact, any examples we had were negative examples, and so there wasn't anything desirable. When the Lord brought me into the fellowship of Diamond Hill, when I was 29 years old, this is literally the only local fellowship of the body of Christ I have ever known. And I know the ups and the downs. I know the discouragements. I know the victories and the defeats. And I've watched others fall away. And I've watched others come, come back. And I've, uh, over these years, I've just witnessed God working through this fellowship. And I'm convinced that you're not here by accident. You are an important part in what God's doing in this body of believers. And I think even by extension in the body of Christ globally, if not nationally. So you're an integral part of that. You are here both to be for him to exercise his instruments in your sanctification and to make you an instrument in the sanctification of others until we all come to the maturity of those in Christ. What a wonderful thing that is to me. That is tremendous, a tremendous blessing because I can't go anywhere else for that. They don't do that at the YMCA. They don't do that on the ball field. They don't do that at the swimming pool and they don't, they don't do that. In some ways, they don't even do it at Christian conferences anymore. But that God does that within the local body of Christ. So if nothing else tonight, let's give the Lord thanks that we have been united with his body. Stand with me. We'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for, for the church, for the body of Christ. Lord, thank you for your many blessings through these many years. And Father, the lessons learned for those of others of us who have been here a long time and we've seen the ebb and flow and we've seen the, uh, at times indifference and other times what we would call revival. And Father, I thank you for the time that we are in in this midst. As I was thinking this morning, we live in a very unique time and it is challenging, no doubt. But Father, we may be on the cusp of seeing the church become what the church was called to be. 
And Lord, I pray that you would make each of us who is gathered here and even those who gather with us on a Sunday morning, Father, I pray that you would make us a part, make us obvious as to what you are doing. Lord, help us to be instrumental in your work within the body of Christ. I'm convinced, Lord, by your word that you, you began that work here in the body of Christ. Father, make us what you will. Conform us to the image of Christ so that we might bear witness in this world as it grows darker, that the light of Christ may shine more brightly from this place. Bless all those who've come, Father, in their individual Christian lives, their families, and Father, particularly as they gather with us regularly and as we grow in Christ-likeness together. Thank you for that great blessing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.